I want you to picture the scene. Jesus has just been resurrected, has 40 days before he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father in glory. Now, if you were Jesus, what would you do with those 40 days? If you had 40 days to influence the world before you ascended, who would you prioritize spending time with and what would you want to teach them? Well, this may or may not come as any great surprise to you, but Jesus felt that the most strategic use of his time was to teach his followers about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says this, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. I suggest this single verse teaches us a phenomenal amount about what it is that God values. Of all the things he could have done, Jesus talked to his followers about the kingdom of God. And then, just to emphasize the absolute centrality of the kingdom, quickly flip forward to the end of Acts. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's nearing the end of his life. So what does he do? Well, he invites people into his house, and he teaches them about two things. First of all, who Jesus is, but also he teaches them about the kingdom of God. Acts 28, verse 23. So a time was set, and on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and he tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. The next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has two years teaching in the global center of his day And these are his themes. Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now here's the thing. If I was to ask you what you reckon Jesus and Paul taught about the kingdom, would you have any idea? Because in my experience, whenever Christians hear mention of the kingdom of God, there tends to be a whole lot of confusion and fuzziness. It's like, what do you actually mean Certainly not helped by the fact that nowadays we're a little suspicious, aren't we, of unelected monarchs who rule and reign. I mean, what right have they got to dictate to us how we should live? Why can't we just let everyone do their own thing? And when we get onto the subject of warfare and extending empires, we get even more uncomfortable. This really isn't something that sits easily with a lot of us. And then, for people who have perhaps been around churches for a long time... Often there's baggage from abuses of teaching on the kingdom. It's often the territory of prosperity preachers and those who teach an over-realized eschatology. That's a view that really we should be enjoying all of the benefits of heaven right here, right now. Complete health and wealth, trouble-free existence, which is great and it preaches well until things go wrong and you lose your job or... Perhaps you get cancer or circumstances don't work out as you had expected. At which point, people either blame God or they blame themselves. It's like, God's let me down, so I'm not going to follow him anymore. In fact, I'm not even sure he exists. Or, I still believe in God, but I clearly haven't got enough faith. Or maybe God's punishing me. And so I must be a rubbish Christian and God's clearly rejected me. Therefore, what's the point of even trying anymore? Either way, it doesn't result in anything good. Often these people burn out or cynical. 
And so I think what often happens is that churches shape a view of the gospel that does away with this whole topic of the kingdom altogether so as to avoid all the controversy. One version of the gospel is the gospel of salvation. It goes a bit like this. God created human beings in his image. Adam and Eve chose to sin and rebel against God and became their own gods. As a result, they suffered spiritual death and physical death. They're worthy of the judgment of God. But in his love, God put a covenant people together called Israel, who embodied all of God's promises. Ultimately, this led to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Christ came to save people from their sins so they could live with God forever in heaven. That's the gospel of salvation. But what's missing from that? What have I left out? Well, there's no mention of the enemy. And do you know what happens if you have a Satanless gospel? Who becomes the enemy? You do. You're the enemy in the whole story. It warps our understanding of what Jesus is trying to do in the world. That's the gospel of salvation. Next up is the gospel of heaven. This version says, well, the world sucks, you suck, and Jesus came so you can go somewhere better when you die. Problem here is the Bible starts on earth and ends on a renewed earth. It's like we spend all of our time desperately trying to get out of here and God is spending all of his time trying to get in here. So it's taking us in the complete opposite direction to the one that God is going in. Then there's the gospel of justice. This goes a bit like this. Because God has a disproportionate concern for the poor, really the main reason that the church exists is to alleviate poverty and care for the oppressed. We know that ultimately Jesus is going to overthrow all unrighteous power structures. And so until then, the role of the church is simply to disciple the poor and work to stamp out all injustice in the world. Now once again, there's truth in this. God does seem to have a disproportionate care and concern for the poor. But this is not all of what Jesus taught. Jesus came and he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in Mark 1, we see this, verses 14 and 15. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. What was the good news? Well, it was this. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. So repent of your sins and believe the good news. So here's Jesus giving his opening message he's saying to everybody this is what my mission is all about it's good news the kingdom of god is near and then right at the end of his ministry matthew 24 we read this verse 14 and the good news that phrase again is is incredibly good news the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come So Jesus frames the start of his ministry and the close of his ministry by talking about the kingdom of God. Which brings us all the way back to the question of what exactly is the kingdom of God then? As I try to show you, I think what often happens is we end up picking up different fragments of the gospel, different snippets about what God's like and what he's doing in the world. But we don't have a cohesive understanding of the kingdom of God that holds it all together. And so to that end, we've put together a short film that unpacks in a little more detail and hopefully it's going to bring a little more clarity to you explaining what exactly the kingdom of God is. So, the kingdom of God. 
It's one of the most famous phrases in all of Christianity, yet also one of the hardest to get a handle on. Well, what does the Bible say? In the beginning, God made everything. No exceptions. If it exists, God made it. And as the creator, he owned everything. He ruled everything. He was the king. But he delegated some of his authority to the people he made. People made in his image, created to share in his rule and specifically to apply his rule to the planet he put them on. Our job as humans, then, was to act as delegates of the king, working with him to bring his order and fullness to the rest of his creation. But something terrible and unexpected happened. Another power rose up and deceived people. It convinced us to rebel against our king, to throw off God's rule and rule ourselves, having the final say on what was right and wrong and how we should live on the earth. It was a preposterous suggestion. We could never really exercise authority effectively over the creation we were part of. However, in effect, what happened was that through our rebellion, we handed the crown over to this other power. What was by right the kingdom of God then got a new name, the kingdom of the world. And though the world was still sustained and held together by God, somehow it also became separate from his rule and came under this other power, God's enemy, the serpent, Satan. So in a very real sense then, a coup had occurred. The rightful king had been ousted and a new ruler had usurped his throne. But God was not content to leave his precious creation in the hand of his enemy, and so he put into motion plans to reclaim his kingdom. He began with an actual kingdom, Israel. First, God chose one man, Abraham, and grew him into a family, and grew that family into a people, and grew that people into a nation, and before long, Israel became a kingdom, with real kings and everything. And for a while, that was great. But even Israel's best kings proved imperfect shadows of the true king, and even under the guidance and blessing of God, Israel's human kings led the people away from God's rule. But God promised that one day another king would come. And hundreds of years later, God proved, as always, true to his word, and he sent that king. His name was Jesus. And what did the promised king do? Well, you never guess. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. People needed to get ready because the kingdom, he said, was near them. And he told lots of stories to illustrate what this kingdom was like. It was like a great treasure that you'd sell everything to get your hands on. And it was also a growing kingdom that spread out, pushing into the kingdom of the world and extending the rule of the king. But it wasn't just something that existed kind of out there in the atmosphere. It was something you entered. It was something you could be outside of and that you needed to come into. As the people listened, their minds surely would have gone back to the kingdom they were familiar with, the kingdom of Israel. What they would have heard was that God's rule is coming and will be most tangibly present in a new community where the subjects of the king can live out the values of the king together. When Jesus died and rose again, there was a decisive swing in the balance of power. Jesus revealed himself as the rightful ruler of all things, the king of all kings. He sounded the death knell of the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom that was near was here. Well, kind of. We live in the time when the kingdom is here, but not quite as fully as it could be. Now and not yet. The kingdom of the world is defeated, but its forces won't go down without a fight. The final phase of God's plan and the full coming of his kingdom will happen when Jesus returns again at the end of time. Then God will finish off the job and he'll bring everything back under his rule again, as at the beginning. In some ways, even more than at the beginning. No more will there be two kingdoms at war, but one kingdom at peace. No longer two rulers with two groups of subjects, but one king, the rightful king, 
with his people. The Bible tells us what God's people will shout on that day. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's the good news of the kingdom. The coup will be short-lived. The wrong will be righted. God's kingdom will be restored. God, the king, will reclaim his rule. So there you go. So really our job now is to try to figure out what it means to be faithful subjects of the king, living under his rule here in the earth, and living out his victory over his enemies. So secondly, what, what, what does this mean for us in practice? What does this actually look like in the real world? Well, let me give you just two implications. First of all, it means authority. This goes all the way back to the beginning when, remember, God gave humans dominion, authority over the world. Hello? (laughs) I take authority. (laughs) Go. (laughs) See, very practically worked out. Visual imagery, it works. You'll remember that. It goes all the way back to the beginning where God gave humans dominion over the world. As we've just seen, we're his image bearers called to represent him in all of creation. The enemy stepped in, trying to snatch the dominion, trying to snatch the authority given to Adam and Eve. His goal was to try to get them to live apart from, separate from God. And when they fall for it, this vacuum comes. And that's where evil originates in the world. Remember that verse later on in Genesis, when Cain is about to murder his brother Abel. God steps in and warns, be very careful, sin is at your door and seeks to have dominion over you. And basically that's what's happened to the human race. Instead of ruling and reigning, we've effectively become slaves. Slaves to our whims and desires, slaves to our phones, slaves to sex, slaves to money, slaves to our career, slaves to binge eating, slaves to the Xbox or the PlayStation, slaves to power, slaves to people's opinions of us. Ultimately, slaves to sin, death and Satan. So we end up in a place where we have no victory. In the book of Romans, Paul teaches that Jesus comes as the second Adam. He doesn't came, come to regain God's authority. God's never lost his authority. He's never lost his sovereignty. But we did. We were given authority, dominion to rule and reign with it here on the earth, but we gave it away. Which is why the scriptures say that the whole world is now under the control of the evil one. It says in 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God came, the reason Jesus came, was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus comes as the second Adam. He comes to set everything right that Adam got wrong. Whereas Adam sins, Jesus resists all temptation. Jesus lived this perfect life, died as a sinless substitute in our place. And because there is no sin in him, when our sin is placed on him, has no power over him. He conquers sin, hell, death, rises from the dead. As a result, Jesus now gives us that life. 
comes to us as a gift through repentance and faith. And his desire is now for us to live with his authority as we live under his rule and reign, his lordship in our lives. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Now, just let it sink in. Jesus has authority over everything, including our lives. And this is good news. It really is. You know, one of the things the enemy likes to do is twist and distort stuff so that people end up calling what is good evil. Authority is good. The good news is I get to live under the authority of Jesus. Listen, we don't become followers of Jesus by inviting him into our hearts, coexisting with a bunch of other stuff. Now, we become followers of Jesus by submitting to him as Lord over every area of our hearts. Now, let's be real, that's an ongoing challenge for all of us, isn't it? Not least because we have an enemy who's constantly trying to lure us away from living with Jesus as king, but to allow other things to rule us is to sentence ourselves to living in a place of fear and anxiety and insecurity, a place where there isn't a whole lot of peace, there isn't a whole lot of hope, there isn't a whole lot of joy, there isn't a whole lot of life. If you hear nothing else this morning, now please do try and hear something else, but if you hear nothing else, please hear this. My appeal to you is to actively submit to the good, kind, wise rule of God over every single area of your life. Over the course of this weekend, I believe that is what God is going to be calling you to do. Please don't fight it. Please don't resist it. So the message of the kingdom of God is all about Jesus ruling and reigning in and among us, the church, his new humanity, to drive out the enemy who's occupied this world and taken what doesn't belong to him. This happens as we submit to Jesus' authority in our lives, and live in the good of this authority in the here and now. Authority. Here's the second word. Freedom. Freedom. You read the Gospels. You see Jesus modeling what it looks like for the kingdom to come. You you read all of his teaching. Look at the way he ministered to other people. Time and time again, he brought deliverance, He brought liberty. He brought freedom from oppression. And I believe that's what he wants to do in the world through his people today. As a church, we're to be a people who live under the rule and reign of God and seek first his kingdom, pushing back the works of the enemy and bringing deliverance and freedom to others. Now, I know we live in a society, don't we, that has pretty much dismissed any kind of spiritual dimension at work in the world. I mean, we don't believe in that nonsense anymore. And so we can perhaps be a bit cynical about any talk of spiritual forces of darkness. But every now and again, you 
encounter something, and you're left thinking, there is absolutely no rational explanation for this. And we can dismiss it, and we can ignore it, and we can push it out of our minds, but it doesn't stop it being a reality. That's why people are I think often surprised when they become a Christian because they had this worldview that said there really isn't a God and then they meet God and then they say, well, I probably need to rethink my worldview because reality has changed my life. You know, perhaps some of us need to rethink the way we look at the world. I think God will be doing a bit of that over the course of this weekend. Why don't you quickly take a look at Luke 11. Why don't you see how Jesus ties together all of these threads, all these themes of rule and reign and power and authority and freedom. Here's what he says, verse 20 of Luke 11, if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe, until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons and carries off his belongings. Among other things, Jesus is saying here that he is stronger than the devil. And he's here right now, binding up the enemy. He's about to plunder his belongings. He says, look, the power of God is here. The kingdom of God has arrived among you. I'm stronger than the enemy, and I'm driving him out. You know, part of my prayer for this weekend is that we wouldn't just gain a whole lot of head knowledge about the kingdom, but that we would experience firsthand the power of the kingdom. That where we're bound by things, where perhaps we're not experiencing a whole lot of freedom right now, that we would experience the kingdom tangibly coming in our lives, bringing deliverance, setting us free to live more and more under the liberating rule of Jesus. Authority, freedom. Praying for much of that this weekend. So finally, how should we live? What should we do as a result of all of this? I say finally, there are three points. First of all, <laughs> you would have been disappointed if there weren't. First of all, be expectant. Be expectant. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, Paul says this, For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. It's like Paul saying, I'm not showing up just to give talks. I'm here because the kingdom of God is drawing near with real, tangible power. And so, why don't you surrender to him? Why don't you open your heart to him? Why won't you respond to him? Why don't you open wide the doors and allow him to bring you freedom? The kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. Now, in my experience, Christians tend to live with vastly different expectations of what this really looks like. One end of the spectrum is faithfully just hanging on, clinging on for desperation 
with no expectation at all of the power of God ever breaking in or making any difference. Now, don't hear me wrong. There is a place for faithful perseverance. But that doesn't take into any account what's available to us right here, right now, because of what Christ has done. The other end of the spectrum are those who expect all of the sick to be healed now, right away, and for every single person on the planet to come to faith. That's more than Jesus saw. He didn't pray for everyone to be healed. He had this capacity to discern where the Father was working. I think somewhere between faithfulness and perpetual revival is the advancing of the kingdom. It's like we live in this overlap of the ages. That's one of the things that came through on that film. We live in a time where so much is available to us in Jesus and so much is still yet to come. And we look forward to Jesus' return at the end of time when everything is put right, when everything is made new. And between now and then, there are places, and it's glorious, it's wonderful, we pray for more of it, but there are places where the invisible realm breaks in and is visibly seen. And so to that end, I think we're to pray, Father, I know you're at work all around me. Show me where you're working so that I can step out with faith and join you in furthering your kingdom. Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. I don't want to do what you're not doing, but I do want to do what you are doing, so teach me. You know, my prayer is that Jesus would wake us up to what he's doing. I don't want us to miss where he's working, because he is at work all around us. Which is why we need to pay attention, for the kingdom of God is near, and that is good news. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Luke 11, verses 2 to 4, Jesus said, this is how you should pray, Father, may your name be kept holy, May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. It's so simple. Father, more than anything else, I want you to be honoured. And I want everything that's happening in your kingdom to be happening around me. I want it to be happening in Birmingham, my city. I want your will, your rule, your reign to be expressed through my life. And through my submission and obedience to your will, your rule, your reign, your lordship, in some way let kingdom renewal flow out of me, that the king of my heart would bring the kingdom of God around me. What should we do? Be expectant. Secondly, demonstrate. There's a message of the kingdom of God, which I've been trying to unpack to you. There's a message... There's also a ministry of the kingdom, actually doing what Jesus has commanded us to do. Jesus said, the student, when fully trained, will be like the master. Similarly, John said, in as many words, if anyone claims to confess the name of Jesus, they need to walk as Jesus walked. So we have a message, we also have a ministry. As a church, I believe more and more we're to demonstrate what life in the kingdom looks like. 
Last time I preached, I said that it's one of my favourite quotes, and you'll probably hear it from me again. I'm a man of my word. Here it is. In the words of Leslie Newbegin, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions which the gospel is the answer. Or as Philip Yancey puts it, in the soil of this violent, discordant world, an alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of the day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of that coming rain. That's what we're called to do as a church. Or to quote Karl Barth, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Isn't that Jesus' vision for us? That we'd be like a city on a hill, that people would see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. As a church, let's do everything we can to demonstrate what life under God's good rule and reign really looks like. Be expectant, demonstrate. Then thirdly, see absolutely everything you do from a kingdom perspective. Really, there's no sermon that's completely complete without a C.S. Lewis quote. Here's what C.S. Lewis says, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. And he's calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. We are invited to join God in the sabotage of everything that is corrupting the creation of God. Everything that's holding back the beauty and reign of Jesus. That sounds great in theory. It preaches well. But you might be wondering, well, what on earth does that mean for you? Well, if you're a lawyer, you might feel like you're hidden away as a lawyer, but you're also potentially sabotaging the works of the enemy by providing a voice for the voiceless. You might be a doctor, and it feels like the whole time you're being told by the government that you're failing to meet targets, but you're also sabotaging the works of the enemy by helping to mend broken bodies. You might work in industry, might be in the service sector, and you might feel like it's more spiritual to work in the caring professions. Perhaps you struggle to see what good your work does, but you are sent as a covert agent of the kingdom, sabotaging ungodly business practices with integrity and righteousness. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mum, And it feels like all you're doing is changing nappies and watching brain-numbing kids' TV. You are. (laughs) But for the glory of God, you are sabotaging the works of the enemy by raising another generation of kids to know and love Jesus for themselves. There is meaning in what you do. Wherever you are deployed, whatever you do, there is the thing you do 
and then there's the real thing. You're joining God in his great campaign of sabotage. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. So don't worry about these other things, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So we're called to see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. To really pursue that. To join God in responding to this mission. Which kind of begs the question, up until now, what have you been seeking first? Which of those different Gospels that I unpacked at the beginning, which of those have you been living in? Which Gospel have you been believing? All these different variants of the Gospel, they all have good things in them, but what we really need is the Gospel of the Kingdom. We need to be a community of people who seek first the Kingdom of God. So how do we live in the Kingdom of God? How does the church work in the Kingdom of God? How do I seek first the kingdom of God? It's like, you say hunger and thirst for the kingdom, still don't really know how to live in it. Well, my time is up, almost. We're going to explore the answer to all of those questions and more for the rest of this weekend. You'll be relieved to hear. In a moment, I'm going to take a short break, and we're going to go to a whole bunch of different workshops aimed at exploring what this practically looks like, whether it's as a young person or at work, in your family life, in your personal devotions, in the arts, in showing mercy to others. And then this evening, we're going to touch on how to live together as the church in the kingdom. We'll wrap it all up tomorrow with how an understanding of the kingdom impacts how we live in the world. But here's how I want to finish this talk. Not quite done yet. I want this sense that God wants to specifically address those who, for whatever reason, have perhaps been inwardly resisting this message. So, if you've been inwardly resisting what I've been saying, this bit's for you. Now, how do you know if you've been resisting it? You probably know. Here's what I believe God would say to you. When Jesus rose from the dead... Something profound, something amazing happened in the temple. Owen referred to it right at the beginning. The the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Curtain, if you remember, separated the Holy of Holies, the the place where God was thought to dwell, separated that from the rest of the temple. It was like a huge no access or no entry sign. Access to God was restricted to just one man the high priest, just once a year. And then only if he carried a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the rest of the people. But now the curtain is torn from top to bottom. It's like God left the box and you now have access to him anywhere and everywhere. There's no longer a place that you have to go to to try to meet with him. Everywhere has the potential for the kingdom of God to break out. 
And so, after his resurrection, Jesus doesn't show up as the great high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. No, he's showing up as people are walking on the road to Emmaus. He's showing up when people are full of doubt about him. He shows up and reveals himself to them. Does anyone know what year the temple was destroyed? Anyone know? 70 AD. And what year was Jesus raised from the dead? 33 AD, there or thereabouts. You know what that means? It means the Pharisees went and got another curtain and put it up in the temple and effectively said, God, you can stay in the box. We don't want the kingdom of God breaking out anywhere else. We're going to stick with our religion, going to stick with all of our rituals, and we're just going to keep you out of the way over there. Listen, I don't want any of us to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want any of us to effectively put God in a box to live 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 more years of our life as though we didn't really rise from the dead, like the kingdom of God didn't really break out. He's available to us everywhere. And for those of you who are like, yes, this isn't for you. You get it. You can keep your yeses to yourselves for now. Do more of that later. But for those of you for whom there's a resistance to this, I simply want to challenge you this weekend to ask the question, how have I been sewing the curtain up and putting God in a box? Because we're called to seek first the kingdom of God in all of life.